Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Michael Biggs, a sociologist at the University of Oxford who has recently studied the transgender movement and its consequences. One recent article in the Journal of Controversial Ideas demonstrates how queer theory transformed English prison policy. Another in the Journal of Sex and Marital Therapy scrutinizes the origins of and the evidence for puberty suppression in children suffering from gender dysphoria. I welcome Michael Biggs to Savage Minds. I noticed on your website a point I particularly appreciated is a description of what you do regarding your research. You say most sociology focuses on events of everyday life or on encompassing social structures. I'm interested in the times when ordinary people chose extraordinary actions in defiance of powerful structures. Their collective action occasionally transform those structures, the French Revolution, Arab Spring, for example, which of course lends its historical significance. But even when collective action fails, it is intrinsically interesting. Within the discipline, my research fits into the field of social movements or more broadly, political sociology. I really enjoyed this description because it's very appropriate to the era in which we live today. And I was wondering if you could speak about the kind of interest that you have had around this issue of gender identity that might link back to some of your earlier work. Yes, that's an interesting place to start. So I, I did my earliest research on sort of waves of protest. And so where kind of waves of protest erupt as, uh, for example, in the, in the Arab Spring or in Occupy, where you sort of got these spontaneous collective actions um, and trans, the transgender movement is, is very different from that. So in that sense, why, why I find it quite challenging because, and, and in, interesting to think about it, because it seems on one uh, to, to be in part a very sort of orchestrated from above, or at least has sort of official sanction, not from the government necessarily, but from the authorities, from the teachers, from the social workers, from the medical professionals, uh, from uh, university academics. So while it's uh, sort of a, it is, there is a genuine sense of a genuine youth movement. I mean, there is a genuine sort of spontaneous grassroots mobilization of of young people through social media. It also it's not so much in conflict with sort of power structures. It's partly um, not not quite orchestrated, but but certainly allied with large parts of the sort of authoritative systems of society, like education, health, uh, the NGO sector. Um, and so I think that's that's why you can't really understand it in the way that I'd previously understood social movements as this kind of collective uh, collective um, organization and mobilization from below. It's much more of a kind of hybrid between a kind of a top down and a bottom up phenomenon. Right. And how did you get involved within this criticism of what's happening in the UK around gender identity? Well, um, it, it's maybe there are sort of two phases. So in the in the in the 1990s, I was in graduate school in America, and I was very actually engaged in the trans uh, issues, but, but it, very much as a kind of a, a supporter. Uh, so I saw all the sort of Leslie Feinberg, I went to Leslie Feinberg's lecture uh, when she came to Boston. I went to the first FTM, female to male, uh, conference. Um, so I was very much engaged with that um, as a kind of someone who's looking at it very sympathetically. And then for various reasons, I had no, no knowledge or awareness of what was happening uh, from 2000 to 2016. And then a student, when I was teaching 
uh, our master's course in sociology. And one of the things we have, which is rather, rather nice little exercise, is that we get students at the end of the, 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 the term to look at some sort of social phenomenon, not to look at what other people have written about them, what sociologists have written about them, but just use their own sociological imagination to come up with some potential explanations. So I must have seen out of the corner of my eye in The Guardian something about the number of trans kids has increased. So I gave that out as just one of these little puzzles. And we had a good discussion about it, I thought. Um, and then after that discussion was finished, the, a student who, of course, was American came to me and said things were said in that seminar which were very problematic. And I was, of course, quite taken aback by this because I would feel felt like I was a trans ally when you are still in nappies. But um, uh, there was something odd about that, uh, that she didn't uh, raise those issues in the seminar, say, this is wrong, or these things are being said, which are factually incorrect. But somehow she wanted me to sort of police the discussion of what the other students were saying in a way that was uh, appropriate. And then I had two other students also email me saying that it was also very problematic. Um, even, even the question itself was problematic because I'd said, why is there an increasing trend of kids identifying as trans, something like that. But I used the word trend and they said that was very problematic, that word. So I realized there was something going on here because of course, I'd, at that point, I'd been teaching for quite a few decades and something odd was happening. And then I started reading around and first, of course, you know, read uh, these sort of uh, radical trans-exclusionary radical feminists. And first I thought, these they're horrible. They're, they're really vicious women who just can't be accepting of trans people. And then the more I read, the, the more I thought that actually their arguments are pretty strong. And so, yes, that's how, basically how I got into the, uh, there's basically students telling me to educate myself and I did educate myself, but I came away with the, the, wrong, the wrong views. The wrong education. Yes, exactly, yes. <laughs> Well, you've described precisely what I went through in almost the same time frame, because I was out of the US quite a bit. I was involved in the gender theory biz, let's call it that what it is now. I had it as a graduate student. I was asked to teach queer theory at NYU, but this was back in the early 90s when queer theory was about gay liberation. I even didn't see the writing on the wall for where this might have headed. It was about evidencing gay male lesbian spaces and bodies and desires and cinema. I taught a course where I worked with the students on looking at visual culture representations of gay male desire, Derek Jarman, Marlon Riggs, etc. And it was all very not what it is today. <laughs> it mm. was about gay visibility. It was about same-sex desire. It was about looking at the interstices historically, sociologically, where gay men had to codify their desire through certain signs, certain language. And none of that indicated that we were going to head towards surgical transformations of the body that are by fiat deemed as changing of sex, literally. None of this was even minimally evoking a future of we're going to push for children to go in that direction. Where do you think the shark was jumped in what seemed to be in the late 80s, early 90s, something seemingly democratic about looking at the representations that we had not seen before because history deemed them unacceptable and forbidden? So I think one of the one of the roots is this is, I'm afraid to say, and, and this is my my controversial, one of my controversial views, 
the roots of this in, in a feminism that denied sexual difference. So you have, which, and I think that is one of the seeds of what later became transgenderism, because there's a really strong view within feminism that there might be some differences in physical differences below the neck, but there is no, you know, essentially no behavioral differences between men and women that aren't caused by patriarchy, that aren't caused by so social structure. And this belief for a while, for decades, was, was quite benign, right? Because the early feminists were, um, well, first of all, they, they might have said, stated that, but they didn't necessarily, um, you know, necessarily believe it 100%. But, but and it was also a dissident view because mainstream view would probably exaggerate it so differences between men and women. So as a result, you get between the sort of feminist view and the orthodox mainstream view, you get a kind of a happy, you know, somewhere in the middle is, is the truth. But as it became more dominant, um, it became something that uh, became hegemonic, right? This idea that there are no differences between men and women. And you can find this extraordinary about with, with young women on now who will say that there are, you know, you shouldn't have sports. Sports are segregated only because men can't face, you know, we're, we're only to denigrate women. That's the only reason why we would separate men and women's sports is because it's, you know, a sort of a hangover from the days of patriarchy, which of course licenses then allowing trans, trans, uh, you know, men or males who identify as transgender into women's sports. So I think that that there's kind of there's one thing that was laid in the foundations of feminism that then became for a while was kind of inert. It was like a ticking time bomb. For a while, it was inert and didn't have, wasn't wasn't problematic, but became problematic perhaps with Judith Butler's complete disassociation of gender from sex. So I think Judith Butler is, in my sort of understanding, um, one of the key figures who kind of creates the new transgenderism. Because of course, transsexualism had been around for decades um, as a very sort of minor phenomenon, um, and then I think transgenderism really comes from from Judith Butler or one of the one of the sources is, is Judith Butler's um, notion, very radical notion of gender as kind of performative. She sort of shifted between her first book on this, Gender Trouble and Bodies That Matter. In Gender Trouble, gender is performative, but she refers to that performativity in the quadrant of the social. Suddenly in Bodies That Matter, she does this twist on that where gender is linked to the body itself not necessarily a separate valence such that you can make a cake, you can garden, and no one will say, Michael, are you a woman? And similarly, I can wear dungarees, I can go mm -hmm. bowling, and no one's going to wonder if I'm a woman or not. But in that second book, Analyzing Gender, we have to put this all in quotes too, and we'll, I'll get to that in a minute, why it has to be in quotes, but she shifts towards the somatic as a repository of truth. And this is something we see that's strung out over these last decades since the publication of that second book, where people get in this weird cycle, I call it a moibus strip, where they say, but sex is socially constructed, gender is somatic. You've heard this, I'm sure. Sex is between the legs, gender is between the ears. This lobby has gone to great lengths to try and show, again, in quoting marks, that the brains are different of transgender people. There's been no conclusive evidence at all on this on the scientific front. I've had Gina Rippon on the show as well to discuss this. Then they try to say, well, I want to be my authentic self 
and by matching my gender identity to what feels right to me, well, what they're referring to when they say gender identity, they're talking about sex because you're not going to go to a surgeon and say, please operate on my gender identity. And she is going to look in her Grey's Anatomy for where the gender identity is located. It's obviously a sex change, right? What mm. in the day was called that or transsexualism. Well, they flip this idea all the time between gender identity being a reality and sex being a social construction, but they're always operating physically on the body. And this is something that Butler entangles in her second book. The first book, which is going back to why I said all this analysis of hers in Quoting Marts, is when I've taught that book, I could never even give graduate students more than a chapter or two because it is incomprehensible, <laughs> most of it, okay? I mean, it's no surprise she won that bad writing contest back <laughs> in the day. It is one of the most incomprehensible, overrated books of our era. One must wonder if some of the intrigue around Butler has been the fact that because the book is so unreadable, it's like the eight ball where you shake it, whatever pops up on that triangle that floats to the top is your answer. I feel like we're sort of there with Butler who uses a lot of five syllable terms, goes back to Hegel, but why? A lot of people, even students who have read her work, have a difficult time understanding what is being said in any particular paragraph. It's quite the paradox that a huge movement today is largely based on a book that is vastly incomprehensible to the masses. Yes, no, exactly. I mean, that's 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 right. And I think its obscurity is in some sense means that it's powerful because you can't really, it's harder to debunk, it's harder to critique because you can't really get a, get a handle on it. It's like, like fighting with jelly, isn't it? Well, yes. I mean, Michael, just get educated. If you don't understand her book, you must be transphobic. <laughs> yes. These are all very good retorts that we've seen over the last many years on social media. But this begs the question as to how you and I were in the States around the same time, in academia, working on our graduate degrees around the same time. And I'm sure you noticed this, how many feminist studies departments were either undone, replaced with gender studies, or twinned feminism and gender studies or feminist studies and gender studies and a lot of feminists decry these actions i understand why because it was a managerial decision to say let's just go into that direction this is a popular way of signing up hundreds of thousands of students who are taking out loads of loans to study at our overpriced institutions let's create these departments and that happened it happened mostly in the 1990s if they weren't overtly gender studies departments they were often twinned with literature studies and cultural studies departments and often even you'd find departments like american africana studies departments that would include specialists in gender studies as well so when i was on the job market looking for a full-time tenure-track position at one point, I was up for a job in the French department at Berkeley, first interview with them on the phone. And this is how the interview went, because they were looking for a specialist in gender studies and queer theory. Okay. Mm. So the interview started like this. Everyone was like, is, are you there, Jack? Yeah. Are you there, Susan? Okay. Everyone was getting connected. And I said, hi, I'm Julian Vigo. You could have heard a pin drop and it was very silent. And then someone said, I thought you were a man. And another woman said, yeah, we thought you were a man. And I said, this is for the gender studies position, right? I was sort of being ha ha. 
And it was quite interesting to me the way in which a French department had set up an entire track for the specificity of gender, not Voltaire, not mm. 16th century literature, but that. I saw this all the time in my field. I was wondering if you had some inkling as to how this came to be transplanted from the US to the UK? Did cultural studies in the UK play a role as well? What are your thoughts on this? So I think, I mean, certainly queer theory came to um, influence the transgender movement in Britain through Kate Moore, who was uh, uh, sort of completely forgotten now because Kate Moore sort of left the movement, but uh, in the, uh, at the end of the 1990s. Um, but Kate Moore was a kind of dissident, um, transsexual, I think would be fair, uh, fair description um, at, at that time. And it had sort of, but was doing, I don't quite know where they did their undergraduate, but they were doing kind of cultural studies, literature, whatever. And they found that this, this stuff really exciting. And when Ju Judith Butler came to, to London, uh, Kate Moore was able to interview Judith Butler and um, Kate Moore worked with Stephen Whittle, who was went on to become the, the leading transgender activist in Britain and foundational in getting the, the Gender Recognition Act in, um, in 2004. So that was when that when it kind of came to um, came to sort of reshape what what had been sort of a movement of transsexuals to become a, a much more um, radical transgender movement, and particularly to focus no longer on the body. Um, so no, and that was the key of the 2004 Gender Recognition Act to say that all you needed is a, is, a, is a diagnosis of gender dysphoria. There was no medical intervention that was required. And that was absolutely uh, inspired by um, Judith Butler. You can see Kate Moore, Stephen Whittle um, explicitly uh, uh, you know, connecting uh, their, their legislative goals with uh, Judith Butler's ideas. So I think it came, it very much came um, through uh, activists in Britain as well as academics at the academic level. And yeah, and Kate Moore was, there was a, a nice little sort of journal or zine, almost like a zine called Radical Deviance that, that Kate Moore uh, was the co-editor of and publishing a lot of um, sort of queer, just in that first sort of queer in the mid 1990s, sort of just exploring the queer discourse as a way of understanding um, what was becoming transgender rather than transsexual. In the 1990s, my dear friends moved to Austin, Texas, and one of them studied under Sandy Stone, who I came to know. Mm. I came to know Sandy Stone quite well, actually. While at Stone's house one day, preparing for a class, Stone said to me, well, one day soon, we're going to be able to have sex changed legally without any kind of somatic intervention. I remember this discussion very clearly. And I think back to that quite a bit because I didn't realize the implications. I didn't realize how a generation of scholars could influence the next to enact this. And I had firsthand knowledge of people being trained in the States, going to the UK, bringing gender studies with them. I was and am friends with Jay Prosser. Mm. And I knew Jay when Jay was a graduate student at CUNY. We both did our PhDs in adjacent departments. It's interesting because when I look at Jay's work about queering the well of loneliness, for instance, a lot of lesbians push back on that, of course. This isn't a trans narrative. Why is this a trans narrative? But the embrace of the voice of a trans narrative eclipsed 
any kind of study heretofore from feminists. And the other day I was speaking with Lyra Sapir about his work in this field. I was saying to him how the one thing that I had to come to understand, because I never called myself a feminist, I was using preferred pronouns. And I recounted to him, speaking with Julia Long one day in London, who said to me very kindly, why are you using she to refer to a man? And I realized how far down the rabbit hole I was in, not knowing, of course, to convenient, and I know that's not a verb, but to make convenient this narrative for others. And this is something that was fed to me through academic discourse. It was also fed to me through societal politesse. I kept thinking about the ways in which we take for granted the fact that suddenly the well of loneliness as a trans narrative was promoted and pushed more than dozens of papers or books on that subject, on that particular narrative, and why that is. So I said to Leo, I said, you must understand that the feminists have a point when they say this is about their erasure, the erasure of women. And we talked a bit about that, because while he understood that, he said to me, I think that's a result, not an intention. But wherein lies that difference, really? Because it doesn't matter why someone murdered my friend, they're still dead. <laughs> mm. Well, so I think the interesting, yeah, that's interesting the example of the well of loneliness. I mean, I suppose you could say cynically that after a hundred dissertations have been written about the well of loneliness from a feminist and lesbian perspective, you know, you're the 101st student, you want to so queer it, or, I mean, because you've, you've got to see something new about it. So you can't just bang on about lesbianism. I mean, that's been done for decades at that point. So then you say, well, it's, these are actually, you know, this is a queer or a trans narrative. These are trans men. Um, so I suppose there's within academia, you, you do have to have novel and in some sense, novelty, intellectual novelty that's associated with a marginalized identity is the thing that is cutting edge and cool and sexy. And in some sense that that by the 1990s, you know, homosexuality was no longer, you know, cutting edge. Uh, and so you needed to move on to the next thing. And trans, I guess, was more, was, you know, trans was more, more interesting and more deviant and more marginalized. So I think there is that sort of intellectual dynamic of, particularly when it's linked to a kind of um, celebration of, of the marginalized, like we need to find more marginalized people. We've done women, feminism, we've done gays and lesbians. Now we're gonna, gotta move, some, you know, we're gonna move on to something, something else. Um, and the other point I would make would be that it is, does tend to be females who are in charge of this. And I think this is what I would distinguish between the previous transsexualism which as Janice Raymond, I think quite correctly said, this is, you know, transsexualism from the 1950s to the 1990s was a male phenomenon. It was male doctors, people like John, or, you know, clinicians, people like John Money. It, the, the, the transsexuals were 90% male. Um, and so it really was a kind of a male thing. Whereas with transgenderism, what's different is that this is now women. So Judith Butler, and of course, the other side of that, Judith Butler at this sort of intellectual level, but the other side of that is, is Peggy Cohen-Kettinus, uh, the Dutch uh, psychiatrist who sort of develops the endocrinology that to, to support the material basis of, of transgenderism. And of course, if you look at all the people who are pushing, let's say, transgenderism in Britain, uh, Stephen Whittle uh, had been a lesbian and is now a trans man, uh, was the, then became a trans man. The, the heads of Stonewall, the big LGBT organ, the dominant uh, LGBT organization, uh, Ruth Hunt and Nancy Kelly are women. So it, the, the head of the gender clinic, children's gender clinic, Polly Carmichael was a woman, is a woman. Um, so I think it is very much uh, led by women, 
or females. Some of them, of course, have taken testosterone and had uh, other changes, but uh, and would call themselves men. But I think it's it's really driven driven by females, and that's something that feminists I think find it difficult to sort of quite comprehend because the idea is well, it must be about patriarchy. But I think transgenderism is, is much more uh, as much as a much a very different phenomena from the previous transsexualism. Well, I'd like to speak about patriarchy. I have a problem with this term, the ideology behind it as well, because for all the critiques of Foucault that feminists make, I think his analysis of power is quite interesting. And I think it would behoove feminists to understand the intricacies of power, because if we begin to understand power as something that is a monolith from a certain sex, where no one has agency who is not of that sex, and coterminously refuse to take into account even Marxian analysis of class, let's say, or other analyses, let's say, that could be added on. I begin to see the discourse of patriarchy as something that also gives rise to the trans ideology history in recent years, in the sense of there's a huge victim narrative at the center. Mm. So what I see feminists saying is, well, she's oppressed. She probably was sexually abused. She was probably in denial of past experiences that were very destabilizing for her. And I think, but wait, what about the patriarchy? It seems to shift goalposts, the explanations as to how the patriarchy operates. Yes, I mean, I think that I mean, in some ways, I mean, transgenderism is, I mean, adopting a trans identity can be incredibly empowering in you know, progressive spaces or, you know, and more and more spaces in some sense in the educate in schools and universities are progressive. So it's, it's not about um, necessarily being a victim, although, of course, some people, quite a few, lots of trans people identify as trans do have sort of other kinds of issues and problems. And that's a way of dealing, uh, dealing with those problems and, and coping with those problems. But it's also a way of getting one over your fellow students, getting one over your professors and your teachers um, and your parents. Um, and becoming, you know, and, and that's what I think is so fascinating about it is that on one hand, it's adopting a marginalized identity, but on the other hand, there's nothing more powerful than being able to, you know, walk into a room and say, well, actually, you know, you've got my pronouns wrong. And if you get them, you know, to the, your professor, and if you get them wrong again, I'm reporting you, you know, to the university for, for harassment. That's a very, very powerful way of inverting the normal authority relation between, you know, if you think about parent teacher, I mean, sorry, uh, parent-child, teacher-student. Those are kind of formally authority relations. But but once the once the subordinate becomes trans or ha has other some other mar marginalized identity, then those authority relations are much more uh, ambiguous, uh, and the person of authority has now to to walk on eggshells uh, in dealing with this person. So it is a it is a uh, a way of um, empowering, uh, uh, occupying a, a subject position, which is which is gives you some power as well. Um, and uh, uh, more generally, in terms of Foucault, I think it's, I think there is something in Foucauldian about the way it spreads, which in Britain is very clear that it doesn't come from the government. So in some sense, wokeness in general and transgenderism in particular has occurred under a Tory government, under a conservative government, and it certainly was not really the conservatives who are pushing it. It doesn't come from the cabinet or the prime minister or the sort of top ranks of government, it, 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 it spreads horizontally, interstitially through, you know, the teachers, through um, academics, through NH, through the, the health service, public health service, in ways that it's very hard to, for the, you know, for the Tories, let's say, if they wanted to combat it, which occasionally they make noises that they want to um, 
stop this or, or reverse some of these changes, but how do you? you? You can be a cabinet minister, but actually you have got no power because that what actually goes on in schools is not determined by you know the, 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 the minister in charge of education. It's determined by what teachers think. And if you have some young, tend to be women teachers who are absolutely invested in this and they view themselves as doing some sense God's work in promoting different you know, gender identity, then it's very hard for people at the top of that, what appears to be at the top of the power structure to actually do anything about it. Yes, and the managerial class love it. They make a killing at it. It's very easy to promote, as per Robin D'Angelo, guilt over being white when you can charge 20,000 a session to speak to a group of people about their white guilt, yet achieve absolutely no change. Mm. I find all these identity politics quite troubling. Whatever happened to the millions raised by Black Lives Matter? Many people are asking what's happened. They were also linked to some very right-wing, hawkish arms manufacturing companies. People seem to not be able to, as I say, walk and chew bubblegum with these debates. They want to look woke and progressive, whatever progressive has come to mean, because progressive, when people use that word, my hair stands on end. Mm -hmm. It's often the opposite. It's often quite regressive. This transgender movement, there's nothing progressive about it. Unless you think 1950 stereotypes of women is progressive, then go for it. We look back to the origins of gender identity, what was then called transsexualism, emerging at the height of the post-war period in the U.S., where people were going to doctors, very few at the time, getting diagnosed with an ailment. There were clinics. The most renowned clinic was in Casablanca, and a French doctor set up shop there and worked there for many decades. Some of the most famous transsexuals in history went to him, and this was seen as a once-in-the-blue-moon mm -hmm. affair. It wasn't something that I don't think the lawmakers or the surgeons, people codifying the DSM, thought that this would become a mass fad. Lisa Lippmann's work on ROGD, Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria, is appropriate to look at with children. But I spoke to her about this and I said, I think we need to look at the larger far-flung effects of this because there is definitely a mass contagion going on here. And I was also shocked by the lack of criticism from people in our fields, whether it's anthropology, sociology, social psychology, looking at this, right? Because this has been going on for many years. The numbers have been going up every year of referrals, be it children or adults. And no one stopped to think in academia that maybe this isn't a good thing. Yeah, I think the numbers are key there because, of course, when it's a very small number, it really doesn't matter. I mean, in some sense, it's, it's very trivial. So... In the Gender Recognition Act, the debates of the Gender Recognition Act in the United Kingdom in 2004, it was like this was a, to solve an anomaly that five for 5,000 people. And really that would have affected nobody. I and mean, maybe some, maybe some lesbians, you know, some lesbian circles would have had trans women that they, you know, prefer not to have in. But, you know, the vast majority of people would never encounter a trans person. And so whatever the laws were i mean they didn't spend any time in parliament just really discussing this because it was so trivial it was like an administrative anomaly and that's fine if it's five thousand people or one in a hundred thousand so the first you know the estimates of prevalence was like there were one in five hundred thousand uh, where people were transsexual but then as the numbers increase uh then of course that makes in some sense that makes the movement more powerful but i wonder now at the point the numbers are so large that people might be um it might be much harder to uh, for it to, for it, you know, for, to have legitimacy, because it does seem so obvious that, how, yeah, as you're saying, I mean, how could you not say something's going on here? 
social contagion or something, or at least it, it, it's uh, drawing on a very different pool of people than it was drawing on 20 years ago. And yet people don't seem to be able to grasp those increasing numbers. Anything other than, oh, this is wonderful because more, there's more tolerance and so more uh, trans people are, are able to sort of come out. But of course, the, the numbers are, are so uh, increasing by so many orders of magnitude, you simply, that's no longer a, a plausible argument. But I think as the numbers get too large, I think people just think, and I think people are now beginning to, you know, have more criticism of, of uh, youth, uh, what's happening with, with kids, because they see, uh, they see the, the numbers are just too large to be plausible now as, as just people with an eight, an eight sense of, you know, cross gen of, of having a different gender identity who are now kind of finally, you know, having able to, to come out as trans, because we know that, you know, those of us who are somewhat uh, uh, experience in life, have many decades of life. We know that 20 or 30 years ago, there weren't lots of, when we were growing up, let's say in school, um, several decades ago, there weren't kids committing suicide because they couldn't get puberty blockers, right? I mean, that, that didn't happen uh, because of course puberty blockers didn't exist. And in some sense, transgender identities were very, I mean, of course there were lots of kids who behaved in cross-gendered ways but there weren't, or you know, a tiny minority, but obviously there were kids who, boys who like girly stuff and, and vice versa, but there was no medical route for them. And so they didn't, uh, they, there was no sort of sense in which they could become transgender or transsexual. So I think the numbers are, show that this is a completely different phenomenon. Ultimately, I think will cause problems for the transgender movement because you know, as you have more and more boys, playing in the girls' sports teams. I mean, it becomes more and more un obvious how unfair it is. It's not just a, an exceptional case. Oh, here's a, you know, here's a boy, here's a trans girl, we've got to accept this person. But if, there are, if the whole team is, you know, is, is trans girls, then you have to think, like, what's going on here? Uh, and I think that maybe that's one of the reasons why in Britain you can see that, you know, the, the attitudes towards transgender have, have become less sympathetic over the last five years because I think the numbers are just are just too large at this point. So it causes so ordinary people to kind of come across this phenomenon and maybe let be, to be less less sympathetic. Might it also be a problem linking this to issues of feminist discourse where the problem is patriarchy, the problem is gender. And I think Western minds are looking for an easy solution to much more complex problems. If only we could underscore where patriarchy is and take care of it as if ghostbusters, patriarchy busters. But when we start to look at what feminists call patriarchy, it goes back to, let's say, unequal pay, lack of childcare, discrimination against women with children because the employer knows that she'll have to be home sick days for that child. Instead of getting to the material problems underneath it all, we come up with words like gender identity, patriarchy. The same thing with people who say, uh, I was born in the wrong body. Well, no, you weren't. And those are medieval thoughts. When we go and look back to what was happening with the church in the Middle Ages, there was a mind-body dispute there. And I think, and I thought the Enlightenment addressed a lot of that. And I thought even the last hundred years of science would have addressed much of that. But here we are almost forgetting that the Enlightenment exists and that now we're going back to simple solutions instead of saying we need to address the lack of housing for single mothers in the uk for instance the lack of sufficient housing for single parented families etc we are looking for simple answers and i think that's in my mind part of the problem here 
is that when feminists say that the trans movement is engaging in oppression Olympics, often they fail to engage the fact that they too have been involved in that. Mm. Yeah, no, I think I think the um, the those the first things that you you mentioned about sort of um, motherhood and how that obviously has a negative effect on. Um, you know, on women's pay, and, but that would be to that would be recognizing that there are biological differences between men and women in some sense, and I think that's obviously where I think uh, a lot of some feminism went wrong was to sort of deny those differences, right? Sort of say, well, but men and women are identical apart from maybe for a few months, you know, of, of the lifetime when the woman's actually sort of carrying the child. But in actual fact, men and women have not just different bodies, but also different inclinations, different priorities, and obviously. In a, in a society that doesn't sort of recognize that when in some sense we have to say that that people are identical treat them identically then those different needs uh, don't get don't get uh, met in the same way and of course it's also much easier to to address you know to, to say to people put your preferred pronouns in your email signature rather than let's say give but i mean if if a university says okay we're gonna give much more generous maternity leave i mean that would be a huge financial implication for the university right I mean it would be millions and millions of pounds or dollars um, to have let's say generous financial leave or indeed to restructure tenure for example to make make it more uh, to make the whole timeline of academic employment easier for people raising families particularly women with giving birth and, and raising their kids would be a real kind of revolution but on the other hand saying you know, changing toilets is, is, is relatively easy. You know, changing the signs on the toilets from <laughs> men's and women's to unisex or, you know, whatever. I mean, that, those, are, those are very materially, those don't cost anything. And so I think for people in charge of institutions, it's much easier to, there are lots of aspects of woke which, which don't actually require much money. Uh, whereas, uh, and then you seem to be addressing, you seem to be in favor of e equality and, and, and inclusion. Whereas that the actual things that might make a difference, you're saying, as you say, material things, actually cost a lot of money. I mean, that would actually be much harder to implement um, because real resources would have to be involved. So I think that's one of the one of the appeals perhaps of the of of some sort of aspects of progressive ideology is you can look like you're in favor of equality without spending too much uh, real resources. Yes. And that in addition to the fact that there's a lot of funding of gender ideology so that departments can cash in on that. And there was a time when there was funding directly going towards scholarships for students studying certain subjects. And I know when I wrote grant applications for my PhD, I popped in the word gender that was very likely to mm. give me that grant, which in fact, I received grants, I believe in large part because of that. Well, and also outside universities, I mean, it's remarkable to see how much how much resources were being plowed into um you know lgbt which are almost always trans and trans um projects i mean hundreds of thousands of pounds so i remember one so the 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 british uh, lottery fund uh is very is very generous in awarding these and then bbc children in need which raises money from the general general public and then puts it into projects you know all these a lot of resources are channeled into uh into projects to let's say go into schools and help to develop trans identities. So there is a weird way in which money gets allocated um, for promoting this this uh, this um, this ideology in ways that is really quite surprising how much money is involved. And again, this is not because the the government has decided to do this, right? There's no sort of decision. It wasn't in somebody's party political manifesto to do this. 
uh, it was simply that it happened sort of at the middle level uh, through decisions of bureaucrats and and sort of officials and managers, middle sort of middle managers to promote. Uh, oh, we'll, we'll give this award, and of course, Mermaids has been very uh, the the organisation Mermaids in the in the Britain, which is in charge of sort of transgendering the the foremost organisation for transgendering children, uh, got money from the lottery fund and lots of uh, sort of charitable uh, sources of income, going to this ideology which is really you know most the public most of the public would have a lot of reservations about what what this is uh what the sort of implications of this is um but it's somehow that they managed to get the resources and a small amount of you know a, a, a relatively large amount of resources compared to the the um the population involved so just as an example i think it was looking at i think it was leicester or nottingham which is a relatively small city uh, in Britain with a large South Asian population. And they had hundreds of, they got a, a grant for, I think, 150,000 to sort of, to, to support trans kids. And of course, they basically only had two or three trans kids, but they needed to get more. So in the grant report, you said, well, we're glad to find now we have 10, you know, before we used to have two, and now we have 10 trans kids. So you get this actually on a per capita basis, a large amount of resources uh, going into sort of supporting or cultivating or perhaps creating uh, these these uh, these uh, people with these or children in particular with these with these identities. Well, let's look at some of the myths within the trans logic here. One of your latest papers from August on Turban's what you call incredible assumptions about sex, where the survey asks respondents, what is your sex? And according to the authors of this paper, they write several studies have found that transgender youth are likely to understand sex to be assigned at birth. And you go in to critique Turban's findings. Could you briefly discuss that paper? Oh, sure. Yes. Well, so uh, Tur Jack Turban is a very um, uh, prestigious, uh, he has a very sort of prestigious academic career, sort of Harvard, Yale, Stanford. And he is deeply invested in uh, the trend, you know, in sort of uh, transgender medicine. Um, and he has published a large number of, sort of very, very low quality papers, uh, articles uh, that have been very influential. And he always gets, he publishes the article and then he gets the op-ed in the, you know, in a, in, you know, um, in a newspaper to promote this. So what he's published a series of very poor articles and I've been, what I've been trying to do and other people as well, have been trying to sort of critique these, uh, but it's very difficult um, to, uh, to get, I mean, the journals generally refuse to publish, uh, like a journal like Pediatrics will refuse to publish critiques. So this latest article of his was particularly absurd um, because he uh, is trying to, um, it's, uh, he, so he's trying to argue that because sex is now sort of taboo and also ambiguous, because what does sex mean? If you're a trans woman, maybe your sex is, is female. Uh, and that means that it's very difficult scientifically to um, uh, to to get um, uh, sort of valid information, and that's really important, particularly for not. You know, someone says if you're a trans woman, uh, we could say you're male. I mean, we can sort of say, analyze you as male, and we can compare you to the male population. If you and vice versa for a trans man, but of course, if you're non-binary, if you say here are some non-binary people, let's say the suicide rate of non-binary people, we want to know is it should we compare it to the male suicide rate? I mean, like we want to compare the non-binary people who are male to the male suicide rate and the non-binary people who are female to the female suicide rate. So I think this is the the general problem here is the sort of ambiguity around sex 
uh, in a lot of um, surveys now, and indeed even in the survey, uh, even in the census, um, that is now sort of uh, problematic. But so what Turbin was 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 arguing was that uh, that there's no change in the um, that the, the sex assigned at birth is not there's not this increase in females uh, that we which we know is is the case. Uh, so obviously in the era of transsexualism, it tended to, it's almost all boys who come forward uh, saying that they, they're really girls. There are very few girls that uh, want to identify as transsexual at that point. Then uh, over time, from the 1990s onwards, you get this reversal in the sex ratio of children coming to gender clinics or, or wanting to, to transition, and it becomes more and more females. And he, uh, Turbin was arguing uh, that Turbin was arguing against this fact that everybody understands, right? I mean, Turbin, so, so his, his, this particular paper was particularly ludicrous because we all know that there's been a shift from males, uh, the predominantly males attending gender clinics as adolescents or children to females. And Turbin is um, uh, trying to say that that's not the case, uh, which even, I mean, I th think even transgender activists in the medical field critiqued him for obviously uh, making, uh, making uh, this, this ludicrous argument based on obviously children, fill, or, um, young people filling out their sex as being what the sex they wanted to be rather than the sex they actually were. They actually were. And I've just demonstrated that, that he was wrong by looking at height, because of course you can also look at height and what you find height obviously allows you to predict sex because women are shorter than men. And you find that, uh, of course, uh, that the, the respondents were referring to, in many cases, referring to sex as what they wanted to be rather than what they were. So yes, it was just one example of, of his um, very um, media savvy, but an ideologically informed kind of um, research, which unfortunately, and this is sort of idea laundering, right? Even though it's very poor quality research, it gets into the journals and then, of course, it becomes like media reports and, and everything he does, it gets well media covered, good covered in the media. And they say, well, the science says, the science says that beauty blockers are great. The science says that this and that and the other thing. But of course, the science is, you know, very poor um, uh, articles that get published basically because he's saying uh, what is uh, popular, uh, what is the kind of fits in with the current thing. Turbin is a classic example of somebody who is, I think he's really just just riding this wave. He realized he's very ambitious and he knows what what sells. And I noticed that when as soon as the COVID pandemic hit, he was immediately writing lots of op-eds about COVID, even though of course he had no no understanding of COVID. So I think he's he, he's very much riding the wave of what is the current thing. Um, maybe he has some ideological investment in it as well. But I think he's it's very much he's sort of seen what is what is going to help his medical career, his career in medicine, and well, he's done done very well as a result of that. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. We see a lot of this, where bad studies are cited as if they were well-researched, 
peer-reviewed in agreement that they're excellent studies. Mm. And I see this all the time. All it takes is one bad study to be cited and then someone will cite the study that cited that study. And it becomes this domino effect of citation that seems to indicate if you look up on how many times a paper has been cited, oh, it's been cited 87 times, it must be valid. You have very little oversight from many publication bodies. And I'm thinking about SAGE, SAGE, not SAGE from COVID in the UK, but SAGE, the publication mm. industry. <laughs> they have dozens of publications that they put out. They took aim at myself and Rebecca Riley Cooper in one article. And I wrote them about this because it was quite defamatory. Getting to the editor was next to impossible. I was given brush-offs by some administrative assistant. It was written by the person who started the Trans Advocate out of Dallas, Texas. This person has had it out for me for years since I started writing on this subject. He has been after me, so every opportunity he gets, he, they published in an quote-unquote academic journal a piece that was a blog entry that he rewrote, mm. basically. Very bad scholarship, uh, I'd say no scholarship. A lot of the history made up. And you see this all the time where they talk about suicide stats that are in fact not correct. You've covered this. Um, the fact that they say that we're murdered at higher rates than anyone else. I investigated this in the US with FBI statistics and the FBI helping me to understand where their data was incomplete. They're the last group. It's male, then female, then trans identified individuals in that order who are getting murdered. I find a lot of the myths within this gender industry troubling because they are so often repeated by major media. Yes, and it's very difficult. I mean, as you as you as you found out, it's very. I mean, all the incentives are stacked against. I mean, for starters, who wants to write a critique? I mean, if you write a critique of a paper, you're you. That's a sacrifice of your own academic career because writing a critique, even if it gets published, uh, is never going to be. You know, it's not going to be cited so often. I think there was even in, I mean, leaving aside anything to do with uh, trans, transgender, but I think there was a, a study of, of, of critiques in, in, in medical science or in biology. And they showed that, you know, actually writing, writing a, effectively a refutation of an article actually doesn't, actually increases the number of citations to the original article. It doesn't actually do anything to stop citation. So you're sacrificing your academic career, your academic time um, to write a critique. It doesn't have much effect on the literature. And then, of course, with a particular, if it's not ideologically, uh, if it doesn't uh, sort of conform to uh, the ideological presuppositions of journals and or journal editors and reviewers, then of course it won't even be published. So then you've got to publish it as a blog or something, and then it becomes very obscure. So yes, it's very there's a real asymmetry there. It's easy to if if you're going along with the current thing, then of course it's easy to publish something in an academic journal, even if it's a poor quality, shoddy scholarship. And then it's very very hard, or you know. Well, next to impossible to publish a criticism of that. So the literature then becomes completely skewed. And then, of course, the good thing is then that, well, for the good, the good thing, you know, and ironically, is that then the media can say, ah, you see, that the, the science says, you know, because it's all based on actually figures, you know, studies show suicide rates, studies show trans people the most, you know, likely to be killed. And of course, the studies, as you, as you say, are, are very low quality. Um, or you know, completely bogus, but but they're not. They weren't subjected to the the normal kind of you know rigorous academic scrutiny, which perhaps perhaps is a kind of as a utopian fiction. But I think there is you know, in, it, with in less ideologically loaded fields, there is kind of more I think scrutiny of, of what gets 
what gets published because people have diff different views. Whereas if everybody has the one one view, then you can pu publish uh, you know research that is can uh, you know that fo that that follows from that view, and and nobody will will kind of be be willing to scrutinize it. But certainly the, the homicide rates uh, is kind of that, that one big myth. The suicide rates is another big myth. And they're really, really hard to dislodge, right? There's no, it's really hard to, to dislodge the, the, those conventional wisdoms, no matter how, how rigorous your own sort of research is on homicide or suicide, um, because these are convenient myths. And in fact, maybe that get, brings back to one thing, circle, circling back to one thing you originally talked about, sort of the decline, you know, haven't we got past this of the enlightenment and this idea of gender identity is like the idea of a soul. But I suppose if one was to be cynical, we could say, well, maybe it was, it was never a coherent, it was never going to be a stable equilibrium to have a society with this sort of secular idea of we're just sort of, we're just, our bodies are the product of, of Darwinian evolution. Maybe that's just such a, uh, 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 not possible to, to, to get rid of the supernatural, to get rid of the sacred. And so we got rid of Christianity and we thought, oh, that's good now, we're all going to be enlightened. But in fact, spiritual beliefs or beliefs in, uh, in the supernatural come back um, and become very, very appealing to people. The idea that we have an innate of gender in ourselves or the idea that we there are sort of sacred groups, like, you know, people with who are groups that are like priests who have some sort of in touch with the sacred, like trans people are, you could argue. Uh, so maybe the that whole idea that perhaps we grew up with, with you know, we're moving towards a more secular, more enlightened, more egalitarian time, was itself not as really a sustainable in a, at a human or a, at, a, at a cultural level. I've advanced the idea that we've never really rid ourselves of religion, we've just replaced it with other ideologies. And I see this within the trans movement. People are wanting to confirm what some people are saying is simply personality. Other people say narcissistic personality. But we are seeing a movement of people who say, I'm here, I exist, pay attention to me. Hence my shock that more psychologists, social psychologists are not looking into this issue because it screams for analysis. We're living in an era where people are struggling for work. You have I mean, this is no surprise that this has come out of higher education. In the late 90s, there was the crash of Wall Street. We had the crash of the dot-com. We've had the global war on terror, which came at the same time as people on the left advancing the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. I believe one Democrat from California voted against it. All these quote-unquote liberals or leftists were pro-invasion of the Middle East. It's very telling to me where the valences of left and right began to shift on a world order and also within these kinds of interpersonal politics, if we could call them that, where now, Michael, you must call me as I see myself. And I posit that never before in our history have we had a psychiatric diagnosis that requires that society fall in line, mm. where I say to my bulimic friend, cut your fat. Never has it been advanced by the BBC, which only recently has come out in a more balanced sense in this issue. It has for years propounded the trans narratives, giving one side of that story, never balancing them with voices that were at all critical of what was happening, eclipsing the voices of feminists speaking out. We are given this platter of truisms. I have to wonder why so much of this has come from the upper echelons of 
the economic echelons of our society, private schools, elite institutions, Ivy League, very costly institutions if they're not in the Ivy League, that come out with this notion that you have a gender identity. Meanwhile, my students from NYU were graduating and unable to find work outside of bookstore clerks, baristas. And I do wonder if this isn't a, a switch off by the left to offer instead of reasonable wages, insured housing, pronouns, names, mm. special identities. I mean, you said it earlier, it is cheaper, but it also filters into the rise of what Adolf Reed has critiqued for many years, the managerial class. It's very convenient that the likes of D'Angelo and many others can sound off about the ills of transphobia and racism while they are making a killing, doing absolutely nothing to right the wrongs of which they speak. Yes, yes. No, I think I think definitely it is a, is a, it is a sort of a distraction from, you know, a genuinely egalitarian redistributive politics. Um, and the other aspect of, in, of inequality, which, which I think is worth, worth, which you sort of touched on, is worth amplifying, is that, of course, we kind of, you kind of tend to think about inequality as between rich and poor, right? The poor, you know, the richer, the, the gulf between rich and poor is increasing. But of course, one aspect of this is that even within the elite or within the sort of top 20% of society, you have greater inequality. So that means actually the stakes for you know, someone in graduate school or someone at a university are actually much higher. Uh, whereas, of course, in the good old days, maybe before 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 our time, but it's sort of in the 1970s, you know, when universities or 60s, when universities are expanding, you know, you know, academic freedom is fine because anybody can get a job, uh, even with, you know, as long as you get a PhD, you can get a nice, nice job. As the, the labor academic labor market becomes more unequal, more a gulf between sort of, you know, unpaid or sort of poorly paid, unsecure teaching assistants, and then a few kind of star professors who are kind of earning actually a lot of money, relatively a lot of money. Then you get maybe more conformity, more pressures for conformity, um, because it's, it, in graduate school, you really got to, you know, if, 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 queer is, if queer theory is, is, is hot, you need to publish on that. You can't say, well, I'll, I'll do my little thing over here. I don't want to jump on the, I don't want to you know, jump on the bandwagon because of course you won't get an, you won't get a, you know, an interview uh, for a tenure track job. So I think that the increased inequality among the elite may lead to kind of more conformity as people become more scared. And of course, there's also, I think, and, and I can see this very much um, when you look at sort of young women attacking older women, that there is a sense, and I think about, for example, Kathleen Stock or Selena Todd, two feminist academics, um, or maybe Kathleen Stock is not feminist, but two academics have spoken out on this in Britain. And it's often these young women who are effectively, I think, viewing the older turf academics as being kind of blocking their progression because they here they are sitting on professorships. I want that professorship. You know, that young graduate student, that young uh, faculty members think I want that position. And that person is blocking that position. And of course, with the with the end of retirement age, that person, you know, that that person is blocking that job for decades and decades and decades. Meanwhile, I have to scrabble around for you know these kind of. Um, poorly paid teaching gigs. So I think there is kind of intergenerational conflict and, and conflict among the elite, which may make, may under, undergird some of the kind of very nasty kind of dynamics uh, that you get of people trying to get people, other people fired or their books, uh, you know, withdrawn from publication or their articles retracted because there is some sort of material basis as well to this uh, ideological um, uh, movement.
Yes, and in conterminous to this, having the absence of any kind of follow-up studies, as we found with the Tavistock, ensnares the subject into believing the narrative that they are given. There is no way to actually make the statement that we know that people benefit from gonotropin-releasing hormones that block puberty to then go on to taking cross-sex hormones, for instance, either in children or adults, when we haven't the studies to demonstrate this. Yes, because there's, yeah, and, the, and I, I still quite haven't got my head around how the clinicians could have been so negligent as to not do the follow-ups. And in some sense, I, this is one of the things, this is the reason why, one of the reasons why I was initially very, that got me into this is, is thinking, I know that if people, you know, if, if scientists have got a really good medication, there's really good evidence that, it, that is effective, or, you, you know, then, then you publish it, right? You publish that evidence. So uh, the very fact that, for example, the Tavistock Clinic hadn't published the results from their first ex initial experiment with, with puberty blockers uh, for, for kids under the age of 15, that I knew that as an academic, but if the results were good, they would publish them, right? Because I know that, you know, if your results are good, you publish, you, the, the fact that you sit on the results means that the results aren't good. You know, you put them in the file drawer, the classic sort of file, file drawer, um, where you put the result, the things that didn't quite work out, you put in the file drawer. And so I think that that's one of the reasons to be suspicious because maybe, you know, to some extent the kids have been followed up, but the results weren't so great. So let's not, let's not publish it. Uh, and of course, the, the other thing is that a lot of the kids or a lot of people, if they leave the clinic and they sort of disappear and they can't be traced, they 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 then we don't know what happened to them. So if we just look at the people who are, you know, we sort of we 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 can kind of conveniently forget our failures because they just drop out. They're no longer in the uh, in the data. Um, and now maybe they dropped out because they were ha living happy lives and going on and getting on with their lives. I hope they have. But the worry is that actually the results weren't good for them. And that's why they didn't, that's why they, they, they no longer contact the clinic or they, they lose touch with the medical, uh, the, 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 with, with the, the medical, medical people who are treating them because the results maybe weren't so great. Maybe they didn't want to deal with this uh, uh, anymore. And so you have to worry about sort of loss to follow up. Is that really a, a really kind of a, a red flag? Because often, and even when studies are published, they might have forty percent, fifty percent of people we couldn't we couldn't trace. Well, that's that's a lot of people not to be able to trace. And of course, they they you know I would be tended to think that you know that they may be the reason. There's a reason why why you weren't able to trace them, and that's not uh, because they sort of moved country or whatever, but because or because we went on to the, with their with their lives and didn't want to be. Anymore. I think it may well be because they, the, the, the consequences were not good for them. Well, it's hard to argue against what you're saying, because we see the way that detransitioners are treated mm. by the gender movement, and they are shunned, they are monstered. You see very little recognition amongst those who advance gender ideology that, in fact, there's a large body and a growing body of people who are detransitioning. Yes, and of course, in some ways, it's quite, I mean, in if you think about a religious movement, obviously it's hard to leave a religious movement because because all your friends and all your associates are now in this. And if we think about a kind of a, a tight knit uh, religious movement, maybe not like Scientology, but any kind of really serious religious movement, you it becomes part of your life. You all your social connections are within this movement. So of course to leave it is a huge break and means some sense you know is a real there's a real cost to that. And trans the transgender movement has that, but also has the medical as well. 
So it's not just that all your friends and all your associates and all your kind of your life is in this social circle, but actually your, your body is physically changed. And to reverse those changes is, um, is of course, depending on how far you've gone, actually a huge step in, in and of itself. And I think, and I wonder whether, you know, and this is, I think for us, for people who are more skeptical of, of this, we are in a difficult position because on one hand, I, you know, I want to emphasize the sort of the, the costs that I, and the, the, the downsides of, of these physical interventions, which I think have been neglected or underestimated or underplayed by, by the media and by the medical establishment. But on the other hand, I don't want, you know, I think pe if people have transitioned, that may be the, the right thing for them to keep that way. To, to reverse the changes is not necessarily uh, the right thing for them to do. And so um, we're in a kind of difficult situation because I don't, you know, I don't want to, um, and, and even with the transition, as I was seeing someone on Twitter was saying, isn't it, you know, these people, these poor girls that have been mutilated, that their lives have just been destroyed. But I don't want to say to a, to a young woman of, in her early 20s, you know, your life has been destroyed because you're on testosterone. You know, we don't want to say that. We want to say, no, you know, your life hasn't been destroyed. You can go forward and live a good life. Uh, once you are, you know, as a woman. Um, but so I think we are, we are difficult because we want to, on one hand, emphasize that these are quite, they're quite significant downsides to medical transition, but also that you haven't been completely destroyed by doing this. We want to say, well, you know, yes, you've had, you have a deep voice and there are other physical changes that you've had, but you can still go on now and live a, live a you know, live a good life as a woman and you don't need to feel that you were you know, that you've made this terrible error and that your life is over and your body is completely destroyed. So I think for us, there's a difficult balancing act that we have to, that we have to, uh, you know, to navigate. Well, in your recent paper, The Dutch Protocol for Juvenile Transsexuals, Origins and Evidence, you discuss the birth of transsexualism and you link it to the advances that were made at the time of plastic surgery. There's no coincidence to how certain novelties in medicine bear out with new diagnoses. This is something that has troubled me quite a bit because I wonder why, okay, in the 50s, we might excuse this as having happened, being allowed to have happened because of the astonishing levels and pervasiveness of sexism. Women were told to leave the factories that they had occupied while their husbands were out fighting the war. They went back to the home. Women in the United States massively became alcoholics. There was a huge rise in housewife alcoholism because of this. And there are many studies to discuss, in fact, what happened with women who were given an about face back to the kitchen. Could you discuss a bit Aside from your paper, which obviously I want to know more about, but when you talk about the lowering the age of interventionism, which happened at the Utrecht Children's Clinic under the auspices of Peggy Cohen Ketnes, is there not something that we might be able to learn from mid 20th century burgeoning of transsexual intervention as linked to an industry of medicine that sought to not just experiment as per the Reimer child, but to expand the experimentation to prove the modernity of our medicine, if you follow me. It's an interesting, I'll have to think about that. Um, I think this is, I mean, I, I, these are, I mean, the, the people who are subject to this intervention, the, the kids in the case of, of puberty suppression are wanting the medication. So I think it's, it, and this may also explain, uh, factor in why, 
there are relatively few detransitioners is because compared to the number of people who have transitioned so far and that it's the 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 it's not like other kinds of medical malpractice if you think you've got some sort of sort of problem you go to the the clinician the clinician the medicine uh, the the medical establishment diagnoses you and gives you a, a treatment and therefore, you know, if, if the diagnosis was wrong or the treatment was, was turned out to be bad, then of course, in some ways, you, you feel very angry because, uh, hold on a second, you know, I can blame the doctors for, for doing the wrong thing, for diagnosing me incorrectly or for um, giving me the wrong treatment. But with, with gender medicine, in some sense, the doctors are giving people what they want, right? So it's not as if nowadays a child comes to a gender clinic and says, I've got gender dysphoria, what? you know, or I have these problems, what do I do? Because in some sense, what they say is, give me the, give me the cross-sex hormones, give me the puberty blockers, give me the surgeries, that's what I want. I'm trans, you know, I need this. So in that sense, I think if they realize they make, that the, maybe that they've made the, the wrong decision later on, in some ways they tend to blame themselves. And that's what you see in the, in the, in the um, in a lot of detransitioners, they don't blame the doctors so much. They blame themselves and they feel embarrassed and humiliated that I did this to myself. So I think it makes it much harder for them to sort of um, blame the medical establishment, or of course they do a bit, but they also blame, there is also a kind of a self-blaming because they have come to the clinic wanting this medication. Um, so, and I think that makes it quite distinctive perhaps from some other um, you know, medical malpractice um, uh, cases of medical malpractice or medical, you know, treatments that turned out to be not not so good. Um, but in terms of uh, puberty blockers, yeah, just to just sketch the the background. So really, uh, in the transsexualism, as as How Bernice Halsman argued, I think uh, plausibly, is really a, a, a creation of this a new a new understanding of endocrinology and and new techniques of plastic surgery that are developed by the end of the Second World War, and that made it possible, you know, apparently possible. To sort of change sex in a way that had never been possible before in human history. Of course, you could change the opposite, you know, wear the clothes of the opposite sex and so on, but you couldn't, you know, sort of physically change. Now you can physically change, um, apparently, which changes in some respects anyway, superficially. And the next, but of course, that was only for adults. There's very, very few examples of anybody under the age of 16 or 17 or 18 you know, having a physical intervention before the 1990s. And what the Dutch uh, including Peggy Cohen Kettner, so then realized was this uh, this drug that that was used to uh, to block to for precocious puberty could be used to stop the puberty of of um, of children from from the age of twelve onwards, and then you sort of stop the puberty, and then when they became sixteen, you could then give them the cross sex hormones, uh, which would then allow them to sort of go through the puberty of the opposite sex, and that appeared to give a much a better superficial resemblance because if I'm, let's say, a, a boy who wants to be a girl, I haven't gone through that testosterone, that phase of uh, driven by testosterone and puberty. I haven't got the male features. I haven't uh, uh, of uh, uh, voice and, and hair and all the other things. And then, then you give me estrogen at the age of 16 and I become a, a beautiful woman. Uh, and that's almost the way that they talk about it, sort of like I, I really can become a kind of a gorgeous a gorgeous uh, sexually attractive woman whereas rather than a rather you know a rather than a rather obvious bloke uh in in women's clothes and so that was the sort of the, the 
that it seemed like you could actually use pu with puberty blockers followed by cross-sex hormones and surgeries was a way of really changing sex and you could do it young. Uh, but of course, the key is to get them young. And if you, you have to intervene as young as possible. And that has, a, I think, an, an extraordinary effect by lowering the age at which medical intervention is possible. And also, but also as a kind of imaginary, it's now really plausible to think that you can actually change people's sex because, you know, sex, the idea is the sort of the, the, the fiction here is that sex is, is only comes about puberty. And if you can stop puberty and go through the opposite puberty, uh, in inverted commas, uh, then you can, you can literally change sex. And, and it's very notable, I think, the media, media friendly, um, the, the, the media celebrations of trans kids are always now kids like Jazz Jennings will be the most famous and there are other, other ones in every country, uh, including the Netherlands and Britain. They're always kids who got puberty suppressed early and they, they, they look, you know, in a superficial way, very like the opposite sex. And that seems to kind of feed into this sort of notion that you can, you can change sex. And so these puberty blockers, which, you know, were puberty suppression uh, for, for gender dysphoria, was initially just for a very, very few. And you could argue that, well, it would be very difficult to have a trial, any kind of clinical trial, because there was just like in, in the Netherlands with one a year. So there's just handfuls. In Britain, you know, a dozen a year maybe at the beginning. And then suddenly, of course, it takes off and you get hundreds of, of kids a year. And by then they say, well, we can't have clinical trials because, you know, it's it would be it would be cruel. It would be unethical to deprive the children of this of this wonderful medication. So it has a lot of as a lot of sort of transgender discourse. It's kind of completely circular uh, and doesn't make logical sense, but somehow uh, has uh, nevertheless uh, is is powerful. There's also the idea that this was ever an option. Hence my question about the burgeoning advances in plastic surgery and endocrinology in the 1950s. My question related to that is basically this. Why was this the go-to resolution for what was, let's say, a gender incongruence instead of talk therapy? We also, at that point in time in our collective history, had psychoanalysis and therapies. Why was that the go-to? Because one thing that struck me about the pushing by trans-identified adults on transitioning children was this, and this fits into what the feminists have been saying for some time about the misogyny at the core of this movement, is this, when an adult female takes testosterone, she will quickly develop signs of masculinity that a man taking estrogen conversely will not develop. And I refer to mm -hmm. the changes in jaw structure that do happen, facial and body hair. Obviously, she will not grow suddenly to six foot four. Her hands will not miraculously span out men who take cross-sex hormones have very few advantages in terms of looking light, inverted commas, a woman. So what the feminists have been saying is, of course they go after the children because it's the only way that they can have identifiable, sort of looking like a woman, adults. Mm. And the women are paying the price for this, including amongst the cohort of adult females today. You have a very high percentage of women getting what they call, it's a horrible term, top surgery, getting double mastectomies and having, again, bottom surgery, having their uterus removed, having phalloplasty, a series of operations done to them. Whereas a lot of men who identify as transgender, they're undertaking no surgical interventions whatsoever. 
why was that the go-to? That's why I asked if this is, was not about sort of a bravado of scientists at the time to say, look what we can do. Was there not a bit of trying to highlight one's career, even in the 1950s, to create a new field? Not just Marcy Bowers doing it today, but back then, where people were trying to show their worth in the medical field. Yes, absolutely. And of course, in some ways, it's the, I mean, it's the most uh, potent thing you can do as a medic, right? Like literally change sex. I mean, it's kind of like literally change your patient's sex or what seems to be changing your patient's sex. So it's kind of, a, uh, it shows your virtuosity and shows your power as, a, let's say, an endocrinologist to say, look, I can actually mold a child. Um, I can actually, you know, you give me a child and I can basically switch their sex uh, from one one to another. So I think there's definitely that sort of hubris, middle, sort of me medical hubris um, about, you know, what, what you can do. I think, I mean, I suppose um, it's also the case that you, they started off with very, I mean, these are really, you know, really, really cross-gender identified kids. I mean, these are not a kids where they occasionally do a bit of dressing up. I mean, these kids are really, really, really uh, intent the same sex. And so it would seem, you know, if you if you see this kid at 12 or 13 and you say, well, I've got this, you know, I now have this amazing drug that I can, that I can use. Um, it does seem the easiest way of dealing with it, as opposed to saying, well, you know, that they may have to spend years and years and years of, you know, kind of getting used to the fact that they can't be the opposite sex. They may be, you know, maybe go through a horrible teenage years. And maybe by the time they're 25, they've kind of reconciled with their body and they realize that they're a very different kind of woman, a very exceptional, unusual type of woman. Uh, let's say if we case, case of, uh, uh, I'm thinking of the first guinea pig uh, in the Netherlands called FG, who was you know, a young girl who was incredibly, uh, everything about her was masculine. And she came from a very traditional uh, family where her father was a very traditional Italian. And yes, you could say, well, look, you're going to have this terrible time of it until you're maybe 25. And then you kind of become a, presumably on the way to being a butch lesbian because FG was attracted to, to women. Or we can give you the magic drug and, and solve the problems now. And in some ways that that's, that's a much easier way of, of coping with the patient. You know, the patient is there, they're, they're in distress, I've got this, I can use this experimental drug to remove their distress. In some sense, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it seems to be an easy fix. And maybe, you know, maybe one could argue that maybe there are some tiny fraction of people that that's appropriate for, possibly. I don't think I would argue that, but I think it's not an implausible argument to say, you know, one in, 10,000 kids, maybe they, that, that, that's a good thing. But of course, then there's no criteria by which we don't give it to everybody because now anybody who's slightly uncomfortable with themselves and in some ways, you know, what is gender dysphoria? It's just not, you know, being unhappy, right? I mean, there's no, there's no sort of particular, there's no diagnosis. There's no objective diagnosis of gender dysphoria. So once you have the treatment, then you can, you know, you can, you can then have as many people as there's no criteria by which to exclude somebody and say, well, actually, you're just going through, you're just going through, you know, a difficult time at school, or you're just, you're just unhappy being, you know, with your developing body, but puberty, because that's after all what was very common in the adolescence, particularly for girls, of course, because of the, the, you know, the the sexualization that they they have to cope with um, earlier and earlier as puberty gets earlier. And also, of course, menstruation is much more of a big, big. So you've got a lot more physical changes going on, and much more problems uh, than 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 boys do. 
Um, and so, but there's no, there's no way in which you can not, you know, if a girl comes into the clinic and says, I'm, I'm trans, I have gender dysphoria, what are you going to say? You know, there's no, there's no lot, there's no test in which you can test them and say, well, actually you don't, you're just going through a you know, normal kind of troubled adolescence. Right. Except for all the lessons of feminism, and there've been many, it seems no clinician has taken that up and, and offered alternatives to this in the sense of, I was joking when I said this to someone recently, but if someone really wants to work on issues of gender with a subject, why were there no doctors saying, okay, go home and clean your house and see how feeling like a woman works for you. <laughs> I say this tongue in cheek because I'm sympathetic to people who have psychiatric issues. And as you say, <laughs> being sad, being depressed, these are horrible situations to be in. But I wonder if the quasi Frankensteinian notion that we're going to make a body anew, we're going to make you the opposite sex has been anything short of an unmitigated disaster for Western medicine. And I say this with, again, sympathy for people who genuinely suffer from gender dysphoria. But I think that even gender dysphoria as a diagnosis needs to be deconstructed here because it is replete with sexism itself. How can we possibly look at gender dysphoria without looking at what gender is? And gender is a stereotype at the end of the day, because going back to my example earlier, if you're going to make some muffins and offer me one, I'm not going to say, Michael, you're a woman. We know that there are roles, traditional roles in society that have changed. We don't look at women in voting booths and say, oh my God, you're a man. We know that women can vote. And I think that there's been this attempt to revamp sexism at the heart of this movement, even unconsciously, because isn't the solution to gender incongruity to deal with the fact of gender itself and how it has been simulated, dissimulated, and reconstructed over the ages. Yeah, I guess I, I would have a slightly different, well, one is that I think the gender dysphoria captures now an incredible heterogeneity of different experiences. So I think, and I think that's maybe one of the reasons why it's so kind of can, hard to get a grasp on and also, but also why it's so it isn't, it's been sort of, uh, so many people have kind of been drawn into it or young people have been drawn into it. So I think one of the things is that you do have, you know, homosexual cross people who are crossed, who perform cross-gender behavior from a very young age. And I think, you know, Jazz Jennings will be a classic example of this. You know, there are people who are just, and they do tend to be disproportionately homosexual, um, who are, you know, naturally inclined towards uh, behavior that is typical of the other sex. And I don't think this is necessarily about stereotypes. I think this is about, you know, some whatever biological uh, differences that they have, um, uh, which are associated with same-sex attraction. And of course, what the progressive, what I think is the progressive thing is to say, you're different from a normal boy, you know, from a typical boy, but that's fine, right? I mean, that's, you know, sort of, you're just different. Uh, you're a feminine boy and that's great that's just you you know that's the way you do you know that's that's you and of course you need to stop them being bullied um because obviously people who are different are, are sometimes bullied in school and just let them you know that that's their that that's who they are and they should be allowed to develop in that way and and turn into probably end up as gay men or probably end up as as uh you know kind of butch lesbians and then I think that that's the progressive thing. So that's one set of people who kind of fall under now gender dysphoria. So people who are genuinely cross-gender. Now, I don't think they're 
obviously I don't think they have a woman, I don't think a Jazz Jennings has a, you know, a, has a woman's brain, but clearly there's some, he has some inclinations towards femini femininity, which were manifested in the early, at an early uh, stage of, you know, very early age of, uh, stage of his development. But then there are, of course, then there, then there, down Janet Dysphoria also pulls in a whole bunch of different, different, different people, people who are just, you know, have difficulty with social interactions because they may be kind of more on the on the autism spectrum, you know, total, and that's they don't even behave in stereotypically ways of, of the opposite sex. It's just they have difficulty difficulty relating to their same sex or a difficulty with social interaction. And then there, of course, there are the heterosexual girls now who are really kind of like, you know, like are looking quite longingly at kind of gay male interactions, have very romanticized views of sort of gay gay uh you know romance or gay the gay scene and want to be sort of gay gay men which is of course you know going to be tricky uh for them so i and you know so i think there's a now just a whole bunch of different quite diverse um ranges of of people getting drawn into this um gender dysphoria because it seems like a fix for for any kind of problem you have in some sense you know because you you will become a different person i mean that's what that is a, a a human you know yearning to sort of i'm not good enough i'm I'm unhappy with myself, therefore I can I want to become a, a new person. And before maybe you would have you've been converted, you know, religiously, you know, gone through undergone a, a religious conversion of some sort. And now you have this physical conversion that will make you a new person um, and give you a kind of a new life and a much better life. And um, I think in in most of these cases, I'm not, I'm not even sure that, you know, I think we should abolish, I think we should sort of get rid of gender or just ignore it. I think probably is that it would be the best thing to do and encourage people to. Yeah, had the Christina Jorgensen experiment not taken place, had clinicians been advised to not go there and to advance psychotherapy, psychoanalysis, et cetera, for their patients, we'd be living in a very different world, perhaps. In a sense, Michael, I'm asking if medicine didn't change the sociological landscape in which we are living. Because imagine a world where doctors in the 1950s said, here's a psychoanalyst for you to follow through with your questions. You need to be comfortable in your body. You need to be comfortable being a butch woman and being a feminine man. Because the greater problems are that if we were to do anything surgically or hormonally, and we know there are great dangers with these artificial hormones as well that is never mentioned, you will have a quality of life where at least you're living your true self. I mean, they like to say, this is my true self, but it's quite the antithesis of it. We're living in an artificial self that is being buttressed by an artificial pushing of society to say, yes, you are really who you say, here are your pronouns, here is my adulation of your bravery. I do wonder about how medicine has affected a larger societal change, such that today we're living in this nightmare of sorts, a nightmare on so many levels for children, for women specifically, but also for all of us, because there are many people who worry about losing their jobs because of writing a paper, of saying something, of saying simply, I don't feel comfortable putting pronouns in my email signature. Yes, no, just on, you mentioned Christine Jorgensen. Interestingly enough, the first, who was the first um, well-publicized um, transsexual, in the, at least in the English-speaking world, uh, in the 1950s. And what's interesting is the first scientific research, uh, the first scientific report that was written about Jorgensen refers to him as a homosexual male who they treated in order to reduce his libido. Um, so, you know, so you could say in the 1950s in a, in a very homophobic, uh, you know, very rigidly gendered society, 
maybe if you have a very feminine homosexual man, maybe it's his in his interests. Maybe he's better off, you know, being a transsexual in some sense. At least it's a it's an arguable case, right? But of course, nowadays we it, that that should not be the case, and that's I suppose the the great sort of paradox is just as we were getting to the point where we could say, look, you know, people can wear whatever they want, they can behave whatever they want. That's great, you know, that that's wonderful. Uh, then, uh, in some rather than releasing people from from gender, in some sense, this 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 new um, uh, medicate new system of medication becomes more uh, through puberty blockers becomes more and more deeply embedded. And you have this creation of the new person called a transgender child, you know, the, and and social transition, which is also uh, fundamentally kind of linked with puberty blockers because you can't socially transition a child before the invention of puberty blockers because it'll be physically obvious by the time they hit when they hit puberty that they're you know they're the opposite sex than they're what they are the sex they're pretending to be but of course with puberty blockers there is at least this idea that you can socially transition children which then locks it in once you've been socially transitioned uh you know once you've been sort of in the extreme cases your name has been changed you're at the school under the pretending to be the opposite sex wearing the clothes of the opposite sex um you know having the pronouns and using the toilets and everything else it's very, very hard for that child to then say, oh, hold on a second, maybe, maybe I'm just want to, you know, uh, be it, you know, live in my natal sex, because it's, in some sense, your entire self image, your and your social world is built around this, this new uh, identity of being the opposite sex. And there's you know, very difficult to come back from that, it seems, even before the medical intervention. You write on your website about your work with protest, and you ask, why would it make sense to harm oneself without harming others, to go on hunger strike, or to set oneself on fire? And I have worked on a subject which was very volatile. I worked on the female suicide bombers in the Second Intifada on the West Bank, and I was frequently told that I was enabling terrorism. I was asked, but isn't your work excusing the violence done to Israelis? And I was interested in knowing why a 24-year-old ambulance medic would explode herself in desperation to be hurt. Obviously, harm is done to others. But I'm wondering if there's not a shred of self-harm within the narrative of transitioning that society is refusing to talk about. As I mentioned earlier, the artificial hormones from the coronary study in the US in the 1960s and 70s, that study had to be shut down because of the high rate of death, extremely high rate of death of giving men estrogen. And you see very few medical professionals discussing the harms of these hormones, just that alone. When a friend of mine underwent one of the gender reassignment surgeries, as they call it, she told me that her clinician said one of the results of this is that you will have a lower life expectancy because apparently, I did not know this, having surgeries does lower your life expectancy, I guess, statistically speaking. Is there an aspect of self-harm that our society refuses to address because we are all glued into this affirmative model of supporting this brave person, as you see on Twitter. Well, why would someone go through all that if they just wanted to get into the women and girls changing rooms? Yes, and I think obviously um, there is um, a higher rate of uh, uh, self-harm and suicidality among kids who who um, appear, um, who go to the gender clinics. And of course, that's used then to say, that's why we need to 
we need to um, give them the interventions because you know they are a vulnerable group. And it's true they are a vulnerable group, but of course the, the threats of self-harm and the rhetoric of suicide is used to sort of uh, shut down all discussion. And I think in a, in a very way, in a very, um, you know, there's this uh, classic statement, which I, I haven't quite found out the source of it, but certainly appears in the 1990s. But, um, and of course is very prevalent now. I'd rather have a live daughter than a dead son. You know, so the idea is that transition or die. And in fact, if you if you scrutinize, if if you even scrutinize the medical evidence or the sort of costs and benefits of, of these particular interventions, that itself is causing harm. That itself is causing uh, particularly vulnerable people and vulnerable children um, to perhaps kill themselves. As a as a very um, you know good way of shutting down discussion about the sort of normal kind of rational discussion we have we have about costs and benefits or about the sort of the evidence or the 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 implications. Um, so I think the, the harm and the potential for harm is, is, is fundamental uh, to the, 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 the constellation of ideas that is, that is transgenderism. And I think, but I, but I suppose if you want to take a more a broader perspective, you could say, well, look, actually sort of bodily modification or, you know, self, you know, mut mutilation in some sense is part of a lot of human cultures. I mean, it's, it's often the case that we modify bodies. Um, well, I think about the most extreme case, like Chinese foot binding. Um, you know, so maybe we've just reverted, we're reverting again to a more primitive, you know, sort of more primitive. But, you know, if you look cross-culturally, we find lots of different types of um, bodily scarification and, and, and other kinds of body modification. This is just a reversion to, to the sort of things that we thought, uh, you know, perhaps the, the rational enlightenment would, would, would have, um, uh, uh, you know, got rid of but we're kind of coming back to this more human universal sense of of changing your body um and around particularly around with and around spiritual beliefs as well so perhaps um perhaps the enlightenment project uh, itself that we i think probably you and i were both sort of quite invested in as academics and as uh, growing up in the era we did may perhaps that project itself is is um, not in accordance with some, or sort of deeply at, at, at odds with, with some aspects of human nature. I mean, that's a rather frightening <laughs> uh, thought, but perhaps, perhaps it's a thought we need to conjure with. Well, certainly that, plus the legal aspects where people are legally changing their sex, which as you know, in the UK caused problems for all female shortlists, for the GRA, where women are feeling the brunt of that legality. Was it a mistake to ever allow people to change their sex? Yes, I mean, I think I think that was, I mean, yeah, this was, I mean, well, the, the, the beginning, this was for a very, very tiny number of people. And of course, in the, well, the, 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 the rationale for the, the change in the Britain was because you couldn't have same-sex marriage. So, you know, transsexuals had, should have the right to marry. They can't marry. So have a heterosexual marriage because the birth certificate is wrong. So rather than, of course, one solution would just be to bring in same-sex marriage. And that would have been the, the better solution. But that was, at that point, unthinkable, 2004. Within a decade, it had become obviously thinkable. And so yeah, I, I think definitely uh, that, would, that was a mistake. And the implications were never really addressed for, you know, for prisons, for sports, for all these kind of things, which, you know, women are the, being disadvantaged by um, uh, uh, men being able to change their change their sex uh, but that and but but those 
those problems would have affected, would have been very small if the numbers were still 5,000, right? So I think the numbers are key. Yes, you know, 5,000 wouldn't have made, made a difference in the, the population of 60 million. But as you, as you increase the numbers, then of course those problems become more and more uh, severe. And I think, I think, yes, I think we should definitely, I mean, I think that was, that was definitely a, opened up a Pandora's box by allowing, not just legally, but also as, as you say, sort of culturally, institutionally, because nowadays actually there are very few people who have changed their sex. Um, but it's the sort of cultural idea that now you can sort of just simply say, or, you know, say you can change your passport without any, without any legal change. You can change um, your student record. You can change, you know, these things institutionally, you can change your medical record. You can actually have a, another medical, I could have a medical record created, which say that I'm female. Um, even though you know, without any legal changes, without any even the diagnosis of gender dysphoria. And so all these kind of institutional changes that have followed the, in the wake of the legal change have created a real mess, um, which is very hard to, to now rectify because in some ways it would be very unfair with, for people who have gone through physical transformations, you know, publicly funded, publicly endorsed, publicly legitimate. And then you, can you really say to all these people, sorry, you know, we're going back to biological sex. I mean, that would be, you know, very, very difficult to do. So we're really now in, as a society in a very difficult place because what do we, you know, we can't really go back, but in some sense going forward is going to create more and more problems, more and more anomalies. Um, um, uh, yeah, so I, I don't quite, so for example, just to give you sort of a numerical idea, uh, even just a few years ago, there are 20,000 people a year in Britain going to clinics wanting sex, sex, you know, sex, sex transitions. So that's 20,000 a year. So that's a lot of people. Um, and that's, and that's, of course, with long waiting lists. So a lot more people are going, you know, getting hormones privately, a lot more people are changing sex without going through medical, you know, changing their, you know, sort of the way they present or the way they want other people to perceive them without going through the medical route. So there's a lot a huge numbers of people now who are kind of invested in this. Um, and of course, they're, you know, uh, with kids also, they're often their parents, sometimes their parents are invested in the same thing. So you've got a lot of, you know, it's going to, this is going to be a, almost an insuperable conflict going forward. How do you untangle this? I was going to ask you what will happen in the future, because many feminists want for all of this to end, the end of legal changes of sex, the end of these treatments. And I can't disagree with them. Of course, that leaves us with the cohort of people that have already been through that what do you do with them do you grandfather mm. clause them into their identities and then stop the madness because i think we know enough with even the social science of psychology to know that there are other options and these options have been entirely underemphasized by those mm. pushing for gender identity procedures and it would take a very fierce mandate by a group of psychotherapists and psychologists and psychiatrists to come out and absolutely stop it. I'll give you an example. In Italy, doctors can say, no, I'm not performing an abortion and there is no problem, no risk to their job for saying that. And I wonder if that might not be something in the future because I wonder if doctors would have to be the proactive agents to stop this, given that legally, the ball's rolled so far downhill. Look at what's happened with the judge's bench book in the UK, where rape victims are having to refer to the rapist as she. I am very worried about the 
incredible level of capture through all public mm. institutions, NGOs, private institutions. And you've seen this. I mean, all the cases we've all followed throughout the last 24 months. Maya Forstater, who would have ever thought that we would see something like that? Sonia Appleby, we're seeing people bullied for saying that water is wet. And yet that lobby that is supposed to be so marginalized has an enormous power to silence women, to even silence professional women. Yes, I think I think that it is going to be it's going to be extremely messy and the conflict will continue um, for for some time. I think that the numbers, I mean, certainly the direction of public public attitudes in Britain is, has really shifted, uh, partly because I think partly because of the this very successful you know, sort of unique in the world campaign um, led by feminists to push back against this. But I think partly also because of the increasing numbers, um, as we as we mentioned several times. So I think in the long term, I don't think it's really sustainable. I think that the public opinion will will recognize this as, as more salient. Well, you know, because it's, it's not just about what people think about it, but whether how, how much of a priority it is. And when you realize your kids are being, you know, subject to this sort of indoctrination, uh, when you go, you know, if, if you go into a changing room and there's a, there's a bloke in there, I mean, these kind of everyday experiences mean that people will not just you know, abstractly change their views, but also say, this is actually important. This is a priority in my sort of public, for when I vote, you know, when I, when I cast my vote, this will be a factor that determines, uh, you know, who I vote for. So I think the public opinion will shift and I think, um, as um, and I think that these 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 ideas really don't stand up to to scrutiny, and that's why it's sort of obviously so crucial to put them under scrutiny, but also why, of course, they they resist scrutiny because if you can avoid scrutiny, you can avoid the sort of the obvious logical and evidentiary sort of um, um, gaps in in the, the sort of the, the coherence of, of of transgenderism to be to come to light, and I think. In the long term, I think it, it, it is not something that can be sustained um, in the, the sort of the transgender um, movement in the long term. In the short term, though, however, because of all these reasons, um, it is going to be a very, very, it'll be a protracted conflict uh, ongoing, I think, for many years, if not decades. Thank you.